Hello and welcome to episode 218 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're escaping the airborne toxic event in our review of Noah Baumbach's White Noise. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm good. Happy New Year. We've we made it to 2023. I was talking with some people about like, oh, you know, thank God 2022 is over. I'm like, ah, I don't know. 22 wasn't was a pretty good year on a personal level. So, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say I'm sad to see it go, but I'll remember 2022 fondly. You know, we were talking and we're going to start talking on a lot of different podcasts soon about the quality of movies in 2022. And I've been thinking more and more about that. And, you know, maybe it's not as strong as the previous year or maybe another year that we've talked about on the podcast. But overall, I like I like the, the movies at the top of my list uh, from the past year. And yeah, I'm glad that we've gotten the year that was 2022 in movies. We'll talk more about it in future episodes. And I'm excited for what 2023 has in store because, um, I mean, July, Scott, we're I'm not even maybe we should just end the podcast after July 21st. I don't even know if we should keep going. Barbenheimer, yeah, it's going to be a big day yeah. for sure. July twenty first, that weekend, both the movies coming out. Uh, I have about seven months now, I guess, to plan exactly how I'm gonna gonna make it all work. But um, yeah, no, I I agree, Scott. You know, last uh, last night I was going through my photos, uh, trying to make an Instagram post for the year. You know, just memories of the year, and it was hard to narrow it down sure. to just ten to uh, to. Um, put in the post so i think that's a sign that it was it was a good year you know i was traveling a bunch did a lot of fun stuff you know went to some definitely concerts sporting events you know obviously it was a great year for tennessee so got to witness all of that um yeah it, it, it was it was a very good year and i guess on a more important level you know i i moved here to charlotte and am sure. happier with what i am doing currently so um yeah that's like i said that's probably the most important thing although you know i i do mix up my priorities i'm sure from time to time and yes the movies were also good um scott uh you know not not great perhaps uh and you know maybe we can we can have a referendum on that when we get to our top 10 episode about just you know where where do we think this year stands exactly but um i'm looking forward to to recapping the year when we get there and um there's certainly a very very strong you know, top 10 movies for me. And, you know, certainly sure. that extends a little bit, a little bit beyond that too. Yeah, no, d- definitely. And I guess something that we've glossed over a little bit here is that uh, we're about to cross five years of the podcast, which is, well, I guess, I don't mm-hmm. even know. I don't know how numbers work. I think we've been doing this thing for almost exactly five years as of recording, like a couple days away from it. Yeah, well, congratulations, I guess. And, and uh, here's to the next five, though. Who knows what they're going to look like? Uh, you know, the theatrical experience is constantly changing, as we, um, yeah, as we definitely say, as we often talk about. But there are always going to be movies, I think. So as long as there are, I suspect we'll be, be here doing this. Uh, Agreed. But Scott, as mentioned, our film today is White Noise. With his first film since 2019's Oscar-winning Marriage Story, director Noah Baumbach takes on the daunting task of adapting Don DeLillo's supposedly unfilmable novel, White Noise, for the big screen. White Noise stars Baumbach regular Adam Driver as Jack Gladney, a professor and foremost authority on Nazi studies at a nearby university. Jack lives with his wife Babette, played by Greta Gerwig, and their four children, some of whom are Jacks from previous marriages and some of whom are Babettes. The oldest child is Babette's daughter, Denise, played by Rafi Cassidy, 
and in and early in the film denise begins to notice her mother acting somewhat erratically investigating further she spot she finds a suspicious pill bottle and a name dilar she takes the bottle to jack but despite their best efforts no one seems to know exactly what this drug which babette is beginning to pop like candy is designed for Dilar, however, is only one mysterious chemical compound which drives the plot of white noise. The other takes the form of a toxic cloud which fills the air over the Gladneese town after a chemical truck tips over in a crash with a train. Forced to evacuate with their family, Jack and Babette soon begin to reflect on the world around them and their own efforts to delay the inevitable march towards death, an existential journey which will ultimately put their marriage, family, and even lives to the test. Scott, does Bombax take on the supposedly unadaptable beast prove the naysayers wrong, or does this ambitious auteur-led epic leave a toxic cloud in its wake? Yeah, somewhere in between, I'd say. I found that I, I wasn't, I, I was better than lukewarm on the film, but I did think that the sort of epicness of the film doesn't, or of the book, maybe of the source material, maybe doesn't quite carry all the way through into the film for me. I think it is sort of signature bombback flair in, in a lot of the traditional ways. And it also adds some new elements as well, I think, to his cinematic filmmaking style. I mean, there's some shots in here that I don't think are recognizably bombback. I think that there's quite a, a much larger scale involved with this film. And rather than it feeling like the cinematography got away from him. I actually really enjoyed some of those elements of the film. Unfortunately, though, I, and I do, I'm not as, I mean, I'm not familiar at all with, with the source material, White Noise, the, the novel by Don DeLillo, but I do think that it probably did prove a little bit more unadaptable um, than I was hoping. Again, coming from someone who is not familiar with the book, it did ultimately feel like kind of a, a little bit muddled. It felt like there was a lot of things that the film wanted to explore, but wasn't always able to take those threads all the way to their conclusion in a way that I felt that was satisfying to me. Kind of feels like the film ultimately has different parts that, that are going for different genre or thematic things, but I sometimes felt like the thread wasn't always being carried through. So like the first half of the film is really all about this, you know, sort of the the nuclear family type kind of environment of, you know, Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig's um, respective, you know, kids. And then they have their one kid, for, but in their marriage, I, think, well, I forget what that kid's name, that kid's name is like really weird, isn't it? It's like Hunter or something. Like, uh, not Wilder. Hunter's a weird name. Wilder, that's what I, Hunter's not a weird name. Wilder is a weird name. Um, <laughs> so the, the whole family structure and, this whole notion of whether or not um, Greta Gerwig's character is addicted to some substance that's causing her either some sort of brain fog or some sort of forgetfulness, um, whether what the, what's going on there, um, as well as maybe the early notions of Adam Driver's character, you know, Jack or Professor Gladney, whether like his fear of mortality, things like that. I think those things are come through in the beginning and although obviously the airborne toxic event is very relevant for both of those threads, it feels like almost it thematically takes um, a bit of a detour in the middle act to go on this sort of really epic, you know, apocalyptic type event maybe happening in the film 
sort of detour before ultimately comes back and becomes this sort of like almost noirish third act, um, you know, surrealist slash noirish um, third act of the film, sort of diving to the bottom of this dialar mystery. And then the way the film ends, it just had me scratching my head a little bit. I think I ultimately enjoyed the film quite a bit. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be at one of the premiere screenings at the New York Film Festival back at the end of September. And I certainly, you know, I felt I felt like everyone in the crowd knew that what they were watching was really well made, but maybe wasn't sort of the peak of what Bombach had hoped for and even what Bombach has done earlier in his career. And ultimately, I think the performances are really strong, but something about the material didn't fully come together for me, but still a really good, if not quite great film for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had heard a lot of things going into this, obviously. So so this is kind of de facto my most anticipated film of the year since my most anticipated film yes. is Killers of the Flower Moon, and that won't be coming out until next year. Sure. Um, obviously, I'm a huge Noah Baumbach fan. I'm a huge Greta Gerwig fan. I don't know anything about White Noise, but I'm excited anytime one or both of them uh, is involved with the project. And certainly in the case of this, you know, Noah Baumbach was given a lot of money by Netflix to make this movie. Um, and it it comes with this, you know, uh, big sort of narrative like we were talking about, about, you know, this is this unadaptable, you know, very dense sort of philosophical type um, novel that, um, ha you know, I, I don't know if anyone's tried to adapt it before, but certainly um, it, it's a daunting task for anyone who tries to take it on. Um, and so, I, you know, I was very curious about it. You know, the first reviews came out again. Like you said, it was at New York Film Festival and they were, you know, mixed, maybe slightly leaning slightly positive. But certainly there weren't many people who were sort of raving about the film like I would have hoped. And like, uh, you know, like there were with Marriage Story, which was uh, his previous film. Yep. Um, so I was a little bit concerned going into this that I not that I wasn't going to like it because I think it's going to be hard for me to not like one of Noah Baumbach's movies unless he just does something totally different from what he normally does. Um, Which he is kind of but, doing in this film, to be fair. He is doing kind of something kind of well, different than what he normally does. Yes and part. no. I was going to get get to that in a minute. But, yeah. um, but, you know, merely, I guess my worry was that I was just going to think it was pretty good, right? And this is a movie that I want to love, right? I want to be able to say they did it again. Like, this is Greta Gerwig, who yeah. I love's first acting really since you know 2016 uh, you know mm -hmm. she was in isle of dogs but that was in, in a voice role a voice role yeah. 20th century women is like the last time she was really properly in a film uh, i believe so um yeah so so obviously i was very excited for that you know this did have oscar potential at one point that's basically subsided now um unfortunately mm -hmm. but um all that to say at the end of the day I really loved the movie um, and it did not disappoint me. Like I was afraid that it was going to. Um, I do think that though it does tackle some new ground for bomb pack and specifically, you know, sort of the special effects filmmaking a little bit of sort of the middle section, you know, it's been called Spielbergian and everything the way they're yeah, driving the below, out. Below line elements. Cloud. Yeah. 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 They're driving out into this toxic cloud and, um, there's you a know, gorgeous the production, shot in there. Yeah. 
production design throughout the movie is really great. I think it should get an Oscar nomination. You know, the design of the university is really cool. The supermarket obviously is a huge, you know, venue throughout this film and it is styled in um, a very alluring way, which is part of, you know, what part of the commentary of the film. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's a great film to look at. Like you can definitely see how Noah Baumbach used his money. Like he, 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 it is up there on the screen and, um, he's probably never going to get, get this much money to make a movie again, because I can't imagine Netflix. You know, I was actually, frankly, I was surprised that when I went on to Netflix on Friday, when this movie came out, that it was on the homepage. Cause I was kind of just suspecting that this was going to be one of those where you have to go search for it. Um, and, but it's been all, it's also make, been trending like all weekend, I think, too. Yeah, yeah. They're not making a. I didn't think they were going to make a big deal of um, telling you that it was there just because of the very nature of the film. But yeah. um, nevertheless, you know, they, they did here for these initial few days. But I still am skeptical about whether the the interest in it will continue far beyond, you know, the next week or so. Um yeah. But regardless of that, I think the film is really successful. And and like I was going to say, you know, d- despite the fact that it does have some unbombed elements um, at the end of the day, I think like I was struck by how much it does resemble um, a bomb back film, specifically the dialogue and the rhythms of the yeah. dialogue, um, I think, are right on point. And and, you know, I obviously I very much liked Marriage Story. Um but to me, this film, this is more of what I like to see from Bombback. And I think at the end of the day, it's, it's, you know, a funny film. And, and maybe that's like what I, you know, what I, what I'm saying when I say I want, this is like what I like to see from Bombback is there's a lot of humor to be found throughout the film. There obviously wasn't that much humor in Marriage Story, which there didn't need to be because of um, the subject matter. It's but not, I think yeah. maybe I just... I just gravitate towards that more in Bombback's films. Obviously, you know, some of my favorites would be Francis Ha, Mistress America, The Squid and the Whale, all of which are, you know, comedies. Um, for, first and foremost, you would probably say. But um, it is one of the funnier films of the year. And, and the, the dialogue, again, it has a great sort of um, rhythm and everything to it. It may be annoying to some people, but I found that the um, actors were able to perform it in such a way that you know they were they were right on uh, you know online with the rhythms of of the dialogue and you know how quickly it's supposed to go back and forth and um Mm -hmm. i thought that they the cast in that regard like they they did a great job um because sometimes you can see this sort of dialogue you know um sound really false and hollow coming out of the the mouths of um, the wrong actor. And, you know, this is an example, um, you know, this is like the dialogue itself is heightened. Like it is like, you know, they're, they're talking about stuff that, you know, normal people don't necessarily talk about. And as the children in particular are throwing all of this information and everything out here and, you know, debating all these random topics seemingly out of left field. And it's very absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need like some actors, I guess is what I'm saying that can deliver it with, you know, an authenticity that makes you, you know, at least not not believe that like these are conversations that actually happen, but c- believe like in this world that they are. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, you know, again, the cast did that really well. Bombac directed them very well in that regard. And then as for the, you know, the themes of the movie, like I, yes, I, I do think that the 
perhaps in the last 30 minutes or so, the, the, you know, the story or, and the, the heft of white noise does kind of get away from Bombac a little bit, but I, you know, there are, you know, a couple of ideas in this movie that if you zero in on those, I think they have, they, you know, they remain pretty cohesive throughout, um, you know, obviously the fear of death is sort of the big, biggest theme that's going on in the movie and something that all of the, well, at least the main characters are struggling with. And obviously this airborne toxic event puts that in perspective for them, but then also sort of the consumerist critique, um, the supermarket is an example of that, but in general, just the sort of information and media obsessiveness of the entire family and Don Cheadle's character as well, who, um, you know, plays, has, has an important supporting part to play. And I thought that the movie was able to, you know, like I said, re remain fairly cohesive. Now, it may not have the sort of layers or depth that um, that it, they do in the novel. Uh, I'm certain that DeLillo, you know, was able to probably able to do more. But in the context of, you know, a two hour, 15 minute film for Netflix, um, I think he, he more than gets the job done. And, you know, many people have said that this film is very faithful to the book. Um, they've said that both in a good way and bad way. Just uh, I think even if it is very faithful to the book, I think fans of the novel are like, well, we didn't even need to see the book film, so it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. But um, also, you know, I, I think even from the people who don't like the movie, I think the the reaction I seem to be seeing is, well, he gave it a good try, right? He gave it maybe the best try that somebody could give it. Um, yeah. and as somebody who doesn't have that relationship with the book, you know, maybe, maybe that's why I was able to enjoy it more because I just went in wanting to see a Noah Baumbach film. And at the end of the day, I think it was a very good Noah Baumbach film, not quite in the S tier of Noah Baumbach films for me, but you're talking about one of my favorite, you know, directors, directors here. And, um, I, I hope that people will check this movie out. It is right there on Netflix. Again, I don't know what the continued conversation if any is going to be around this movie going forward but yeah. um but i hope that you know you will seek it out and at least give it a shot it's definitely not going to be for everybody but you know like with with babylon right even which was a film that you know didn't work for either of us but it's yeah. the type of thing like i want to see these movies continuing to get made like i want to see damien chazelle or noah or whoever getting hundred million dollars to you know make whatever passion project that they want to make um mm -hmm. maybe it's on netflix in the future but you know as long as they're getting made at all I i'm willing to to make that sacrifice i think but i i definitely enjoyed it one of my favorite films of the year probably um and i'm i'm so happy that i was not disappointed with it um i really i was smiling i went to see this in theaters the first time when it had its limited theatrical run and mm -hmm. I was just sort of grinning the whole way through um, until, until you get to the end and it's a little, you know, a little bit darker, but then the closing credits come. And like, that was one of the, that's one of the most uh, joyous scenes of the year for sure. So um, yeah. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie and hope people will, will seek it out. Uh, Scott, the cast of this movie is pretty star studded actually. Um, you know, we've named um, Adam driver, Mm -hmm. um, who has been in quite a few Noah Baumbach films at this point. He's, he's a movie star. I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, and he is the ladies, Jack, uh, Greta Gerwig is back. Noah Baumbach's real life partner, um, for the first time in six years playing Babette, 
you know, you have Rafi Cassidy being the notable um, member of the, the children actors. Um, Don Cheadle, who we mentioned, is another professor at the university. Um, and then, you know, going down the cast list a little bit, you have just sort of some random appearances like Bill Camp, for example, appears for like two minutes in this film. Yeah. You have Jody Turner Smith, who plays a chemistry professor at the university. Um, Andre 3000, um, Andre Benjamin is also in the film. Um, it, it's one of those where like, you know, you have a lot of people who are kind of popping up for a scene here and there. Um, yeah. Who stood out to you from the cast, Scott? Yeah, I mean, I think first things first, you have to get like Adam Driver. He's it's been like a bit. I mean, he had a couple years in a row. 2019 obviously was sort of the the big one where he was just in everything, and he was just clearly the best thing in almost everything that he did. Obviously, Marriage Story, Scarlett Johansson, and uh, Laura Dern, and you know a bunch of other members in that cast give give you know everyone a run for their money and Bombback film as well. Uh, but I think just to get out of the way, Adam Driver is really spectacular in the film. So it's almost it's almost boring at this point to talk about how good Adam Driver is as an actor. He's just he just really sinks into all the roles that he plays. It, it, it's really remarkable. I mean, there's so few, I think, talents like him out there. I mean, you know, you're watching Adam Driver. It's not like he's a chameleon and disappears, but it, for somehow, some way, even with something like House of Gucci last year, he's able to just make all of the roles that he does feel so lived in and believable. And he just has this incredible knack and ability uh, to do that. So really cool to see him. He, he's the lead in, is he going to be the lead in Ferrari too? I can't remember. Uh -huh. Yeah. The um, Michael Mann. Yeah. Yeah. The Michael Mann film. So that, you know, Adam driver, he's great in this film, completely different than what he did last year with house of Gucci feels like every single role that he does is similar, but different. I think we've said that about some other actors before. Um, and sometimes it's very different. I mean, you think about him playing Kylo Ren and the Star Wars sequel trilogy, you know, that's something very different. So just really remarkable actor. I think he's the perfect sort of foundation and, and something to build around in this film. And clearly Noah Baumbach agrees because he's done it in a bunch of movies of his now. So Adam Driver, great. In terms of the supporting cast, I also think there are some notable names. I mean, Don Cheadle, I think, obviously, is the person who might jump out. He also has sort of the most similar role to Adam Driver in the film because he is this other professor. He is this person who is waxing lyrical rather than about Hitler studies or whatever. It's about Elvis or um, you know, car crashes and meteor, you know, whatever yeah. it happens to be on that particular day. And I think that he has some really great moments in the film, but I'd say the actual real standout for me, and I don't know if this is a bit of a wild card, but I really liked Rafi Cassidy in this. I thought she was really great um, as, again, you mentioned sort of like the standout of the children, the one with the, the biggest role, also the oldest, et cetera. Um, I thought she was wonderful in this. I really did. I thought she really set herself apart from some of the other, uh, for, well, one from the other children in the cast, but also was able to go toe to toe with, you know, whether it's Greta Gerwig as her mom in some scenes, or even Adam Driver um, as her father and others. And I think that the chemistry, especially that Adam Driver and her have in their scenes together as they're sort of like trying to figure out the mystery of Dylar sort of in the second half of this film. I, I love those scenes. I thought she did a really great job. Yeah. I mean, again, as I alluded to, I think the whole cast is 
you know, on the yeah. right wavelength for this movie. Even, you know, I mentioned Bill Camp, like he's he really is only in two minutes of the movie, but he's great. Like he yeah. shows up and he's giving yeah. this sort of raving speech or whatever. Like, uh-huh. you know, everybody understood the assignment, I think, as far as the film is concerned. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, Adam Driver, he like you say, he's almost beyond reproach at this point. Like he he doesn't um, is one of the best, if not the best actor working today um in terms of you know he he is like in the prime of his career now it really feels like and um yeah i think this might be one of his better performances like which is really saying something and um in a in a weak lead actor year i am disappointed that he's not getting talked about more because i think um he's doing a lot of different things with um with this role like you know he he comes off as sort of a you know harmless dad type character in a way like he's just trying to keep his family together and um he's he's a jake sully like figure in that regard but um um but actually you know i think the movie wants us to see him in a little bit more of a toxic um like he does have some toxic elements to his personality i think that the movie does a good job of like and when adam driver again in particular in his performance does a good job of like masking that a little bit with sort of his essential charisma that he has um, but you know there there are certain aspects to the character like first of all the fact that he's so fascinated with nazis and hitler and everything in the first place kind of gets at you know again all these characters he, he has this um line where he says all plots move deathward and a lot of the movie sort of circles around that idea but um it seems that he is fascinated with Hitler and Nazism and everything because Hitler is an example of somebody who quote unquote lives far beyond, you know, his death, right? He is this sort of larger than life figure for worse, obviously, but he is still very much talked about, very much discussed, um, his actions analyzed, you know, all of that. And it seems like that maybe is the, the center point from which his fascination lies. Um, the other aspect of his character, which again is a little bit abrasive, I think, is just how he views his wife or how we come to see the way that he views his wife. Um, there's a pretty crucial scene that happens towards the end of the movie where Greta Gerwig's character kind of reveals what has been going on with her, you know, this whole time. And yeah. he and and you know that she is struggling also, not not to spoil too much, but that she is struggling also with these sort of existential fear of death sort of ideas. And he is like, well, no, you know, that is not what, that is not who Babette is. Babette, you know, is happiness. Babette is joy and whatnot. And it kind of shows that he's like projecting this, you know, idealized image onto his wife, maybe because she is the wife. And he, again, maybe he, he has this sort of, um, again, idealized stereotypical view of the nuclear family. Um, yeah, and the second that his wife shows some sort of emotional complexity and is not just, oh, yeah, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Babette, I'm here to provide food for the family and do all the things that the matriarch, you know, is traditionally associated with doing. Um, he doesn't react like in the way that um, that you would want him to react. So I, I think there's there's more going on than meets the eye with his performance. But also he's just like, again, you just you just want to watch him when he's on screen. And there's an incredible scene um at the university the dueling lecture scene where he and um don Cheadle are giving lectures you know him about hitler and um, yep. don Cheadle about elvis and it just like builds and builds and adam driver is just like 
it's it's a great example of scenery chewing, honestly, uh, because he is putting on a performance for the class, and so yeah. um, it's it's a wonderful scene. And if it wasn't for the closing credits, it would probably be the easily the standout scene of the the film. But I think he's great. Greta Gerwig, I think, is really good as well. You know, she's not given as much to do, but that scene I mentioned, right, which is sort of her big emotional scene, I think she really nails that, and you really um, feel her angst at what she's been going through. Um, Rafi Cassidy, I agree, really strong. Don Cheadle, um, you know, is is fun in his scenes with uh, with Adam Driver. It's it's just a really solid cast across the board. Like I wasn't wasn't disappointed with anyone's performances. Like I said, even the little bit players that pop up for a scene here and there, um, I think sure. are, are doing well for themselves. Um, yeah. Scott, as far as you know, what this movie is driving towards, because I think. Um, you know that when when people talk about it being unadaptable right probably what they're talking about is less the form of the story and more the the content and the commentary and um the ideas that don delillo has on his mind um this book was written like during the reagan era i believe so um you know how how well do, the, do those translate to the modern day what what did you take away as far as um where this movie goes maybe talking about the third act and when it gets into this more sort of surreal territory and there's this scene at a motel which um like i said gets gets pretty surreal um yeah. what what do you think the movie was really driving towards maybe maybe first talking about just the role of death in this movie and the character's fascination with death yeah it obviously throughout the whole film you know we've been talking a little bit about this already there there's definitely the fascination with death one from a perspective of like the car crashes that Don Cheadle's character, it, you know, the opening scene of the film is him giving this lecture about car crashes in modern media and with like almost like the psychology of showing a car crash as well. And then that threads into, you know, this existential fear of death initially coming primarily from Jack, but then obviously of course, Babette as well later on in the film. And then as it tr transitions to this, almost this, it's not the final scene. It's almost like the penultimate, scenes of the film where they're talking. Well, I guess Jack goes to see this Dylar dealer played by Lars Eidinger. Um, and I did think that this was sort of a, a big pivotal scene in the film that doesn't quite come together for me. I'll raise my hand and say the surrealist element of filmmaking when, when a film veers that direction, I think that is very difficult to pull off and have work for me. And I, I really do feel like oftentimes on the page, it comes off a lot more strongly in my experiences. I think that's just my own tastes in filmmaking, to be honest, because, you know, the, the few surrealist movies that I've that I've watched, they just don't resonate with me super strongly. And I, and I kind of got that from this scene as well. It, it's almost and again, this is almost just me talking about my own experiences with with the genre, but. I almost just find it more distracting as a delivery than it is sort of, you know, thematically enhancing, if that's the right way to put it. And I almost find the sort of very surreal performance that Lars Eidinger is given as one where it sort of distracts me from this looming, th this looming fear and this looming threat. It's only when the scene ends, when you have Babette, enter the fray in this room and then end up getting shot, which everyone just seems to ignore 
um, by the way. I know they don't because they go to the hospital, whatever. Which I will interject and say, apparently that is one of the only deviations from the novel is that Babette does not actually show up to the motel in this final scene in the novel. Interesting. Um, Don't know if you, you know, if there's anything to make of that. Yeah, I, I don't think I have anything off the cuff to, to say about that. Um, But that is interesting. I I wonder what Bombach would say, what, like, what the reasoning was for including her other than the fact just to get these two characters together again and, and talk through the central theme of, well, I shouldn't say central almost, but like almost this thread that you're talking about where Adam Driver's character doesn't quite really understand what Babette is going through is almost dismissive of it. Anyway, um, I don't, yeah, I, I, it just didn't quite click for me, but I also would understand if it did for other people. It's not one of these things that I think is just like completely off base and doesn't work. It's just, I get the, it's, it's just, it's just the feeling that this didn't work for me. And it isn't until the end of the scene where Babette shows up and it sort of snaps out of the, of the heavier surrealism of, of the scene that things sort of, piece back together a little bit um and then i have a really hard time making too much of the ending but you maybe you can explain it um a little bit more satisfyingly to me yeah i mean so sean finnessy and amanda dobbins who have both read the book were saying on the big picture that the motel scene i mean it is other than babette not being there it is like very literally what you know translated to the screen like he is filming what is there on the page but kind of to your point it just works better on the page like there's you know even though he's literally adapting it straight from the book like it's there's just something about reading it on the page that it it has the effect that it's supposed to but um yeah i I think that that, you know that is the scene right i started to get a little like okay maybe this is getting away from him a little bit i don't know i mean you know, I, I think you can have a very on the nose reading of like, oh, this this Lars Edinger character, he represents death, right? And yeah, um, you know, we see him through at other uh, other times in the movie as well. Like he's the one who who grabs the rabbit or whatever the stuffed animal that um, the one little girl has yeah. at yeah. the when they're fleeing the, the evacuation yeah. site. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's also in the visions that Adam Driver is having throughout the film. So. You know, he he is hovering over the movie much as, you know, much as the specter of death is. But and, you know, we also have the fact that he's, you know, he's got this gun, right, which Don Cheadle gives him at the evacuation site at sort of the shelter and says, you can, you know, you can use this to kill death, right? This, you know, you can uh, sometimes, you know, you need to be violent or whatever to like bring about life i forget exactly how i phrased it but basically you know he says you can use this to kill death and that's literally what he does one thing i can't quite get my head around is you know he dies and he is on the toilet or he gets shot and he is on the toilet which uh i feel like there has to be some connection there considering that's how um, everyone thinks that elvis died but i just i can't i can't connect the dots in my head on that one but i yeah was this written before elvis died or after though the book after uh, yeah i'm pretty sure it was after but um yeah i don't know maybe not it would be kind of again, 85 kind of, yeah elvis was dead by then yeah. uh, it would be kind of weird if it wasn't because you know again i think the idea is like these figures live on beyond their death um but mm-hmm. um yeah so so this scene like i understand parts of it like again oh he's shooting he's shooting death right he's trying to 
ward off the fear of of death and it has caused him to do something that is pretty bad which is shoot somebody you know probably possibly kill them i mean he doesn't end up dying but he could have killed him but it's just because of the way like the scene is so surreal it's like well is this like even a real guy that he's shooting right is this or is this just some sort of figment of his imagination it's just a little um ambiguous you know he doesn't quite nail it however i do really like the scene after this right when they go to the church and the atheist nuns are caring for them um and to me you know the like the last thing the nun says is like because she goes on this whole diatribe about like oh you know well i don't you know you you people come in here you believe in angels blah 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 all this stuff like kind of ranting against religion and then she says like you know if you're going to believe in something believe in each other right and that's kind of how, what i make of the ending of the movie which is interesting if if babette is actually not even there maybe she shows up afterwards but uh you know in the novel it's interesting but because i think that's a crucial moment of them like looking at each other and being like okay yeah we're gonna believe in each other right like we're not going to be able to necessarily fight off this thing you know th this uh you know idea which is which we're so obsessed with and scared of of death but if we do it together like we're gonna you know be able to appreciate the little things in life a little bit more there's a speech early on that greta gerwig has and they're just walking and she says something like like she's like oh my life is you know a bunch of choices it's do i you know and she's describing like these sort of boring domestic things do i do this or do i do this and um he's like that sounds terrible or something and she's like well i hope it never ends um i think what and, probably happens is it probably there's probably scenes after this in the novel where yeah they're at home and like have this exact conversation and bombach just puts put mushes it together that's probably like that's that if yeah. i had to guess that's what happens sure um but i you know may, maybe that idea isn't totally cohesive like the idea of like oh we're gonna believe in each other we're gonna believe in the family right that we've built and everything and that's what's gonna you know at, at the end of the day we still have that um maybe that's not totally cohesive throughout the movie but I don't know. I like that idea. So maybe I'm willing to forgive it a little bit. And I like that the movie finds some hope and optimism right up at the end of the day amidst um, this story where, you know, a lot of the characters are dealing with, again, this sort of depression and existential ideas and being concerned about death. Um, I like that they're able to find a silver lining at the end of the rainbow. I mean, one of the last lines of the movie is, um, adam driver when they're walking into the supermarket he says like in voiceover he's like you know out of our fascination with some long-standing ruin or i don't you know i'm paraphrasing but we keep inventing hope right and mm -hmm. so that's that's what i make out of it i don't know if that's what was intended i don't know uh if it's you know the full extent of what you take away from the novel but the motel scene is a little eh Although, again, I, I think I understand conceptually, like, the ideas that are at play there. Um, but I do like the, the, you know, that central idea from the scene with the nuns um, that, you know, we still have each other. And we're not, you know, th that's the thing which is going to give us our, our life force to, to make it through the next day. Um, mm -hmm. And sort of tied in with this, Scott, is the sort of 
consumer ideas about consumerism and media consumption and all this type of stuff um, that that are going on in the movie. The supermarket is an example of this. And just the the incessant flow of information that is coming from the children. Right. Like they're. It's almost like they're like reading Wikipedia, right? They're like having all these conversations about, oh, does this animal do this or whatever? And they're like really off base. And yeah, I mean, it's it's quite funny at times. Again, there's the scene where they are in the car um, mm-hmm. floating down the river or whatever. Yeah. And they're like in this, you know, desperate situation. And I, I, I forget, uh, I think it's a, it's little girl is like, oh, do sheep have eyelashes or something? <laughs> she says that like from the backseat in the middle of this. And he, and Adam Driver's like, does anyone want to acknowledge what is going on here? Yeah. Um, but there is sort of that idea as well. Like the, you know, it has taken on some some deeper meaning with COVID having happened recently, obviously. It, it almost strikes me as, and obviously I didn't see this film, but it almost strikes me as like a, a better don't look, example of what's going on and don't look up, right? Of everyone is ignoring the reality of the situation. The difference is in don't look up. It's like they're ignoring the environmental consequences and whatnot of this. Whereas here it's like they're ignoring the reality of death. Right. Um, again, it all sort of comes back to that. Um, but they are having like, you know, when, when the toxic cloud first, you know, ascends Once, over their yeah. town, they're Adam driver and, and um, Greta Gerwig are just like sitting in their house, eating dinner. Like they're trying to ignore, act like everything is normal right yeah yeah um and you know they're eating this chicken and packaged corn and all this stuff again it, it all sort of comes back to like the incessant flow of stuff that we are bombarded with on a daily basis how do you think that plays into the movie's major ideas yeah i think i think it works well it shows you that I mean, I guess to back up a second, I think so much of the Babette character is and the dynamic that she has with Jack is this notion that to him, everything seems normal. And it's only because we have a more interior view on him that it's not actually revealed until later that something's wrong. And so it's almost like the airborne toxic event almost is a blanket with which you can sort of wrap the issues that these two people are facing together. And it's only after you then remove the blanket that you actually see what's what's going on. And so I think that the fact that they're both ignoring the sort of looming specter of death and the form of this of this cloud at the beginning, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I mean, that just feels so universal as well, like this notion of so like there's two kinds of people the kind of per- the kind of person who hears about this bad thing and thinks that you know maybe not even actively but maybe just passively that this is not going to affect them i mean there's so many instances that you could point to in everyday life where that's the case and then there's the kind of people who hear about something and then immediately fret about it right like have some sort of anxiety about it and the fact that jack and babette are both people who deep down we know have anxiety about these things but are maybe so anxious about death that they they refuse to connect that thing they're afraid of with just this with this event that's happening in real life. And so I think it sort of frames the latter half of the movie quite well. And I know this isn't exactly related to your question, but it's almost like, and I'm curious if the novel comes off this way, but it's almost like this sort of detour through the air, like through the airborne toxin, like the the 30 minutes or 35 minutes. Like it's really cool to see that, and I and I enjoy that from a filmmaking perspective. 
I do think that it makes it less cohesive of a film in a lot of ways. Like it almost feels like we're pressing pause on the central thread to like make something really cool for half an hour. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that when a lot of the stuff coming together at the end of the film is, is tough for me to piece through, it does sort of draw back my mind back towards like, okay, we spent half an hour on doing something that doesn't really feel like I was able to track the threads as coherently through. There's obviously spots where you could point and say this is more directly relevant, but I feel like for Jack and Babette, it's not as, there's not as, as much immediately relevant stuff going on to the central thread. So I think that the framing of it is important and you can't just ignore it and move past it. Like you have to send them through it in some way, but it feels like in the middle there, I don't really quite know what I, what I wanted. And I don't know if the book does something different. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it all comes back to the idea of people using people distracting themselves with products, with, you know, yeah. television, with information, with anything that can, you know, take their mind off of, you know, death, the, the end yeah. of the rainbow. So I mean, Denise has her whole medical book or whatever, like the right, like pharmacology yeah. book or whatever she has. Um, and sort of also the like the groupthink aspect of that in a way, um, because, sure. uh, you know, for example, uh, they're when the when the cloud first appears, they are um, they're listening to it on the radio and there are all these conflicting reports coming in again. It reminds you of like this early CDC reports on um, COVID. But, um, you know, first uh, the the boy is like. The, the male child is like, oh, well, they're saying it's nausea and vomiting or, or you know, or the, the symptoms. And then a few minutes later, he's like, oh, well, no, actually now it's dizziness and headaches or something. But uh, Denise, Rafi Cassie's character, then goes in, and throws up uh, after that, this point, which leads to one of my favorite lines, which is when the, the boy is like, oh, she's experiencing outdated symptoms, outdated symptoms <laughs> which yeah. is a great line. But, um, but yeah, yeah it, you know, again, it gets that sort of the groupthink idea that is it actually the toxic chemicals that are causing her to vomit? No, probably not. But now that she's heard that that is the symptom of it, like yeah. she has psyched herself into experiencing, you know, that uh, because the anxiety, you know, she is concerned about it's the fear. It's the concern that is manifesting itself in that way. Um, but but yeah, you know, I think that again at the end of the day it's like the the products are distracting us from everything the drugs right we'll, we'll even go you know a step beyond your you know supermarket items and and you know we're there by the end they're both wanting this this drug which doesn't eat doesn't really do anything it seems but they were told right that it is going to yeah know, and they both found this about death. through an advertisement in the newspaper yeah right like exactly. it's, it's mm -hmm. not like uh you know, it's not a, it's it's obviously not very above board. And it's this it's, like it is it is found through this consumption of media, right? Like you are you are perusing QA through the newspaper. basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're perusing through the newspaper and you come across this ad that pokes at this fear that, you know, this this central anxiety or fear that you have. And that's how Babette, you know, seeks out that that cure in quotation marks. Right. And Adam Driver never would have. Uh, never would have even come across this, you know, Mr. Gray, right? If not for seeing the advertisement when he's looking for the Dylar bottle um, that Babette had thrown away. Like if he hasn't, if he doesn't find that advertisement that has the number mm -hmm. that he can call and then get the guy's location or whatever, he's, he's never going to confront death 
I guess that's the right way to put it. I don't know. And Don Cheadle says something like family is like the the hotbed of misinformation or something like that. Um, yeah. Which, uh, again, like the, the conversations, like the verbose conversations that are going on is like there's just a lot of random like facts and data being thrown out there. Who knows if they're accurate or not? But uh, sure. again, kind of getting at that idea. And then you have the supermarket, which um, is, you know, again, sort of like this spiritual site almost right again it's like they have turned like a watering this shop yeah. yeah shopping into this into a religion right because this yeah. is what they are believing in to deal with their fear of death in the same way that some people believe in god right and maybe that's a projection of you know them being afraid of death we're going to believe in in you know shopping um yeah. and you know that leads to the fine the closing credits right which is this prolonged dance sequence that happens inside the supermarket um to set to the a brand new lcd sound system song which is a banger of a song it's it's a great song uh i highly recommend it but um what i sort of take away from it other than being extremely entertaining is like if you notice the the all of the other patrons of the the supermarket um have um are dancing right they're like holding up products and like you know yeah gazing at them in the air and everything whereas the family is now just trying to shop right they are just kind of um you know navigating around um mm -hmm. the these people who are just like you know dallying in the supermarket and dancing and celebrating the products and everything so um you know i think there's something to be said there that they've learned something from their experiences, right? And the supermarket is still kind of a holy place in a way, but now it's more about them doing it as a communal experience, right? Because sort of the last shot that they are holding on is the whole family, like putting the, you know, uh, products on the conveyor belt and paying for them and everything while everyone else is around them dancing. Um, so now the value of it is, it's something that they all go and do together as a family and enjoy doing it. Um, whereas for everyone else, right, or for them previously, it was like, here's how we distract ourselves from, you know, from from the fear of death, whatever. Um, so I think there's actually a point to the the dance sequence, even if there's not, it's still great because it's just entertaining to watch. And actually, the oh, song, yeah. if you if you, if you listen to the lyrics of the song, like, you know, again, the hook of the song for one is just I need a new body, um, and then there's sort of like these various refrains in the song where the there's like a children's choir almost that are children's chorus that is like just uh, chanting brand names, right? They're chanting like Pana, Sonic, and like all this other stuff throughout the song. So, you know, it, it has some um, thematic heft to it as well. But um, it's, it's a very fun movie. Like at the end of the day, I know we're talking about a lot of like philosophical ideas and everything in respect to this movie and it does have a lot on its mind certainly more so than your average comedy but i think this is i honestly do think this is one of bombback's more entertaining watchable approachable films simply because of that first hour and a half or so right um you know which is setting up the ideas but isn't going to this sort of surreal off-putting place until we get get towards the end and i think people will enjoy 
you know, not not everyone certainly, but some people will enjoy the the comedy of it, the look of the film, the engaging performances, and the sort of Spielbergy nature in particular of that second act. Like it almost has like a National Lampoon's Vacation uh, feel to it at times. Like one of my favorite, again, another one of my favorite comedic moments is after they have a, you know gotten the car out of the the water. And they just come out through the the cornfield. They just drive straight out through the cornfield, yeah. and the car just like lets them merge. And he's like thanking him, like it's a total. They act like it's totally normal, right? That this car just drove straight out of the cornfield and merged right into traffic. Um, so yeah, that was, I mean that, that that's one of the things I I think. Uh, I was like that. I think that was added from the book or from the book too. I was looking because I was just on the maybe. on the page now looking yeah. that there's a what a, an extended car chase scene. It says they say was added. I think they're talking about that um, because they're yeah. chasing the, the off-road vehicles at first. That's I think what I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that's, that's really fun. Um, just again, some of the dialogue is great when they're, when they're floating down the river again, it's like, uh, there's that exchange, like we were saying, and Adam driver's like, does anyone want to acknowledge what's going on here? And, and, uh, Greta Gerwig is like, Oh, your father wants credit for fording the river or whatever. He's like, no, I just want us to pay attention to the fact that we're in danger. Um, so that's, yeah, funny stuff going on. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I have anything else to say. It's, it's an enjoyable film. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it definitely is. It's not boring. It's not a boring movie. That's for sure. Yeah, it, it, it is. Again, it is more verbose. It is more like heightened. It is mm -hmm. it is a more intellectual type comedy than, you know, you maybe necessarily think when you hear comedy nowadays. But it's funny. Like it, it's it's the it's the type of funny where you'll have to stop and think about the the line maybe for five seconds to like for it to sink in. But once it does, like it, it is funny. But um, yeah, I think I I think I just missed that aspect of Bombback maybe with with Marriage Story, even though I still really enjoy that film. So it was nice to see him back and obviously able to adapt Delillo's work to fit his own comedic stylings. Again, maybe the jokes were already there in the text, probably so. But um. I think I think some of them probably were, and maybe there were mm -hmm. other ones as well. But I do think some of the dialogue and the humor come off as just so similar to other Bombback movies that, again, I think totally the threads of, the threads of it could be there. But I definitely think that he also made it his own, and that's what you have to do when you're adapting these kind of movies. You can't you can't just straight lace it. Um, through I, I don't think that's where you find success if you were doing that then there would be no point in making it into a movie right you could just read the book if it was the same right um but also you know again maybe it does indicate also that um the book is more well suited to to bomb back sure than uh, yeah people I, thought in the first place yeah i think that's fair absolutely yeah um anything else you want to add scott no i think you covered it pretty thoroughly um look at I, I there are parts of this film that I really enjoy and then I sort of get to the end of it and I just I'm scratching my head a little bit like I mentioned a couple times but this is an enjoyable film um I don't know if Bombuck ever wants or needs to make another hundred million dollar movie he, he probably won't to be fair but most of his movies are like you know a third of this size so it's not like he's I mean I don't know I'm not going to speak for him obviously but if he never gets a hundred million dollars to make a movie again I don't know if he's going to care that much, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
it doesn't really matter to me. Again, I think he he got this big budget and he was still able to make a movie that I think is, you know, authentic to his particular style. I, I don't really see him as a filmmaker who's ever going to truly sell out or anything like that. So um, I guess I I'm really not really it. concerned about that. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, whatever, you know, if his next movie is made for $5 million, I'll go see it. If it's made for 250 I will certainly go see it. So um, I'm just glad that the man is making films. All right. Favorite scene or moment, Scott? Yeah, uh, we've talked a lot about a lot, a lot of the big scenes, a lot of the best scenes. And you talked about the credits scene. You talked about the dueling lecture scene early on in the film. So I'll just go with a moment that I was alluding to earlier. And it is when they have been told to evacuate their house, they're driving towards um, whatever the Boy Scout camp is called. I can't remember what it's called right now. You know, there's one, there's of course the one shot that like the massive wide angle shot where you see the, the lightning go through um, the, the sort of airborne toxic cloud. But the, the scene that I want to talk is the gas station scene where the, all, all the right angles of for cinematography in this shot, you get this sort of eerie emptiness of it. And then as he's filling the gas tank, after he's sort of investigated the interior of the gas station he comes back out he's filling up his tank and just over his shoulder you see the cloud sort of pa just pass by on the gas station sign um sort of illuminated by just like the sort of low glow of whatever i'm gonna say exxon but it's not exxon in the in, in the in the film you know the, the just the the big sort of neon sign um and that's just such a good shot it's just such a good shot yeah um really appreciated that obviously that's that's the kind of stuff people are talking about when they're saying it's Spielberg and I understand that, but it's really good filmmaking. And if there's something different in this, again, not this sort of an obvious statement, but if there's something different in this than other Bob Mac movies, it's shots like that. You don't get those kind of shots um, in Bob Mac films. And that's not a, a statement or value judgment on, on other is filmmaking. I mean, marriage story was one of my favorite movies of the last decade, you know, of the 20 of the 2010s. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's just different. And it really stood out on the screen. Yeah. Um, and just to sort of close the loop on something from earlier as well, that the dueling lecture scene, again, the idea that he is talking about that um, driver is talking about is like that these people like came to get like the crowds or whatever at the Nazi rallies, like came together to stare at death. But in they came for the crowd, right? They came for like the communal experience of it, um, which, yeah. again, I think they didn't care that, about, you know, yeah, yeah, they didn't care they, about they what the actual content is. It's the same idea about, I mean, it's a wider statement yeah. about religion too. Just that idea of like, yeah. you're looking for community. You're not looking for religion, the, speci the specificity of the religion per Belief se. system, yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, another scene, Scott, which I like, which we haven't mentioned is when they are at the actual sort of camp shelter thing and Adam mm -hmm. Driver goes to, it goes up to this guy at a computer, right, to try and find out exactly yeah. how bad is it that, you know, he's been he was exposed for two minutes when he was getting the gas. Um, and they have a funny exchange of dialogue. At one point, you overhear the woman next to him talking to the uh, somebody else. She's like, the only yeah. thing she was exposed to was good luck, which is a hilarious line. But but then I like their yeah. conversation and like the idea that this guy is like he's they were running simulations of this sort of thing and now they're actually having to deal with the real 
like a real life scenario, but he is still approaching it as if it is, is a simulation almost like yeah. it is sort of a, maybe like sort of a comment on like government bureaucracy and all this sort of stuff. Like it's also a very who's emotion. on first type conversation yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. Taking a sort of emotional, uh, you know, real world consequences out of this event, right. And looking at it as sort of something to study and like learn from it for future generations is like, um, is is something you know at play there but yeah they have it they have a funny exchange of dialogue as well and it's it's um, it might be a statement about government but i also think it's i think that also does feed the larger thematic narrative of like this person is treating it like a simulation because the overwhelming nature of of fully trying to appreciate what it might mean if all these people are going sure. to die after like that that feeds right back into the doesn't want to do that, that yeah. we've been talking about the whole time because yeah. you know it's so overwhelming in the moment you almost he this this guy clearly has just processed this as if it were a simulation because how do you do this job that he's doing otherwise is maybe is maybe one potential read of that and like well the stuff he's telling him is obviously like complete bs and like misinformation oh, yeah. as well he's like yeah, yeah, yeah. oh well we'll know in in uh 15 years whether you're gonna you know make it whether you're gonna survive or whatever yeah um like it, it's it's you know it, it's like I said, it's like the early days of COVID when people didn't really understand what this thing was or uh, what the consequences of it were. There were just all kinds of theories being thrown out. But anyway, um, put a score on it. What do you give White Noise, Scott? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I'm giving it a 7.5. Yeah, at the end of the day, even though I can acknowledge some of the flaws in it, um, particularly that one one scene, it's, you know, a film from one of my favorite filmmakers that I think really, um, you know, gets back to his roots, gets back to the stuff that he really does well in some regards. Um, and it was an overall great experience um, and, and you know, overperformed my expectations, I guess, given what I had heard going into the movie. So 9.0. I loved it. All right, Scott. That should do it for our review of White Noise. We are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing the shortlists that were released for the some of the Oscar technical categories and what they mean for the race as a whole. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, uh, as I mentioned before the break, we have some Oscars news to talk about. Uh, traditionally, around this time, they released the short lists for some of the, uh, you know, further down the list categories, right? Certainly not any of the big uh, six or seven categories, but uh, the, the nominating body does uh, narrow down the... Uh, the well the corresponding branch for like each each one of these categories does narrow down the field to you know about 10 to 20 films actually i think it's 10 in most cases here but uh 15 for score uh 15 for international feature but 10 15, 15 for documentary i think i think most are actually 15 and then there's yeah and then there's some that are makeup 10, and hairstyle uh, and then yeah obviously from those fields you know five will be 
taken for the to be the actual nominees. Although I, I don't are they still doing only three nominees for makeup and hairstyling? I don't know, but anyway, they have done that in the past. But um, hard to say, Scott. Scott, I, you know, there's there's quite a bit to talk about. We, we're not going to get into all of it because not all of it is probably interesting to people. But let's start right with what people are most people are considering the biggest snub, which is in the visual effects category. Um, and that is the fact that the film, which many people are now saying is the favorite to win Best Picture, uh, that being Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, was not nominated for Best Visual Effects. And, you know, not to call any particular films out, but um, a couple of MCU films were nominated for visual effects, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Doctor Strange 2. Although not not the one that not not the biggest offender was right. not, was not on the shortlist. Right. Thor Love and Thunder, yeah. Yeah. Um Fantastic yeah. Beast, which obviously I didn't see, but that was in there. Um Jurassic World Dominion, um, also nominated, alongside, you know, other films like Nope, Avatar, Top Gun Maverick, um, you know, sure. that you would expect, certainly. But what do you think about the omission here, Scott? I mean, I, I definitely think that I am in the camp with the the majority of people in thinking that um everything everywhere all at once certainly deserves to be in the short list at the very least for this category. Yeah. I, I, I always have like a bit head, it, like the fact that there is a short list that is released always just feels a bit head scratchy to me. Cause not all the categories do it. I know, I know I'm like ignoring your question for a second. I'm going to get to it. I promise. It's just like, if there was a short list for director, you know, we would be having the same conversation, but like, why wasn't XYZ person even on the short list, right? Like, even if they were never going to get nominated to begin with, right? Like, it just feels like a strange conversation at all that like these, that these, that in these particular categories, things are shortlisted. Um, you know, maybe blanket statement. Why are there any shortlists at all for any of the, um, for any of these? But especially with something like visual effects, I don't really fully understand why um, we need things shortlisted versus... I might understand it for like best original song maybe or something like that. Like you can kind of understand what the short list is coming from there. But in my mind, it's like, I'm looking down this list, you know, I haven't seen all quiet on the Western front, which is a Netflix adaptation, obviously of the famous novel. Um, but I'm looking down the list. These like, yeah, these are all movies with pretty heavy special effects. There's a mix of practical and CGI effects in these movies. And you know, would I put everything everywhere all at once in over one of these other movies? Yeah, but like the fact that the body didn't, it's just like, well, they had to choose 10 films, I guess. And you can't deny that there are, in fact, great special effects in all 10 of these movies. I mean, I haven't seen all of them, but I assume that there are. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on the list. You know, certainly the MCU movies have come under a, under a lot of fire. Again, Thor Love and Thunder not on the short list, which is the one that came under the most fire um, this, past, this past year. Yeah, I mean, what a joke. Um, but... Yeah, like Black Panther, I thought Talokan was incredible looking. Like the fact that they were able to create that city with visual effects underwater. Like obviously Avatar trumps that by far. But I thought there were great special effects in all these movies. Would I take one out and put everything everywhere all at once in? Yes. Am I super offended that it was left off? I'm in like shrug. I don't know. Like the special effects, I don't think, are what people went, like went away from the movie talking about, to be fair. it's not We weren't talking about the, how great the VFX were coming out of that movie does it deserve to be on the short list probably but some people certainly were talking about the visual aspects of it i think i thought people were talking about like the the, like the story of it more but i also didn't watch this movie sort of in concert with a conversation happening at the same time fair enough um look all, all i all i talked about the film is that there were a lot of dildos people trying to smash um, their fingers. butts into 
into trophies um and the story was super emotional and it was an enjoyable film look I, I don't mean to like rag on the movie that's like not at all what i'm trying to do here at all it's just like this is the nature when you make a short list like so, like someone's gonna have to be offended probably and i don't feel I, super strongly about the film so it's not offensive to me but like would i have put this movie in over fantastic beasts like sure but there was like great there were great visual effects in fantastic beasts though kind of thing. that's kind of where i'm at I think the disappointing aspect of it from my perspective is that everything everywhere all at once was made for like $15 million, right? As opposed to like these other movies were made for, you know, hundreds of millions, even something like all quiet on the Western front was a Netflix movie, right? Like, so that, that was made for a lot of money. And then you have all these big franchise movies. It's almost if like, they're just going down the list of like most expensive movies and like, well, obviously they have the best visual effects. So we're going to, you know, shortlist them. And it's it's much harder for something like Everything Everywhere, which is made for less money, but comparatively has just as good as, if not better, visual effects and certainly more unique visual effects than a lot of these films um, to, to get in the race. So I, I don't know if that is what is motivating, you know, some of people's discontent. Probably not. It's probably just that people like Everything Everywhere all at once a lot. But at least from my perspective, that is one of the disappointing elements, maybe, of it not getting nominated. Yeah, um, I think that, I think that is I think that's a very fair thing to point out. Like, yeah, the almost like the bang for your buck factor of what sure. you're describing. At the same time, like visual effects is a category where there is probably the closest correlation to dollars spent to like like grandiose city of the uh, of the effects being done. I mean, all these movies, I assume. I mean, I have no idea how much All Quiet on the Western Front cost to make. But even like 13 Lives, which was an Am I mean, that was an Amazon film. Um, like you're probably looking at budgets definitely north of 50 million. Nope might even be the cheapest film on this list at like 75 or 80 million. Um, I don't again, I don't know how much 13 Lives cost or all quiet on the Western Front. But the rest of these movies had to have cost more, you know, 100 to anywhere from 100 to 200 million dollars to oh, make. Yeah. And so much of that's going into the VFX. Again, I don't have a value. And sometimes they still aren't that. even good. I mean, I mean, again, sure. in the case of Thor: Love and Thunder, you know, cost hundreds of millions probably, and they just had awful green screen for half the movie. So, yeah. I mean, and, and that film's not recognized, to be fair. But I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I do hear what you're saying, and I think that would be interesting to highlight a film that was able to create strong visual effects on a on a slimmer budget. I think that's a very reasonable thing to highlight. But it's an art where almost like dollars equals performance more often than not. So it's not surprising, I guess. Uh, looking elsewhere, the uh, the documentary feature category um, mm -hmm. released their 15 finalists for the nomination. Um, mm -hmm. They include, of course, the film that I think is the, the overwhelming favorite at this point, which is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. That's Laura Poitras, who has already won um, Best Documentary once for Citizen Four, her Edward Snowden documentary. Um, other films of interest, Descendant is one of Netflix's big um, documentaries about a, a slave ship, an African slave ship. Haven't watched that one yet, but um, that's in there. Fire of Love, we you know, was a movie all the way back at Sundance about, I think you saw it, did you not, Scott? The very first movie I saw at Sundance last year, yeah. Yeah, um, about these this sort of couple that I think are volcanologists, right? Um, Were, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and has a lot of spectacular footage of volcanoes from what i've heard uh, moon age daydream which is the david bowie uh film by um the guy i can't think of his name the 
um, Brett something. He he's a he's a you know documentarian that a lot of people like, but he's never really been recognized by um, yeah. by you know the Oscars or anything like that before. But um, his film about David Bowie is in there. Navalny, which I think we've both seen, Scott, which I also think is excellent. It's yep. not you know. I still think all the beauty in the bloodshed like deserves to win. Like it's, it's, an, you know, it goes beyond just an incredible documentary. It's just an unbelievable film in general, I think. But, um, but Navalny is a crazy story. And like, honestly, Navalny after watching that is, that is like the scariest horror film of the year to me, like more sure. so than it, yeah. barbarian or, you know, anything like that. But yeah, it's, it's basically for people who aren't familiar with the story and I was not, but this is um, about, uh, this guy, Alexei Navalny, who was a politician in Russia, that lawyer and politician, was, you know, r very vocal, speaking out against Putin. Yeah. He's the opposition party ended, to Putin, basically. Yes, Russia. yes. Yeah. Ended up ended up suffering consequences. I won't say more than that as a result. Yeah. I mean, there's if, if you're not familiar with the story, there is a scene in this in this film that it's is crazy, jaw dropping. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but this is CNN, uh, I believe, is the, produced the, the documentary yeah. there. HBO um, Max and CNN, yeah. So I hope that that gets a nomination again, even though I'm rooting for all the beauty and the bloodshed, obviously, to win. Um, those are kind of the ones that stuck out to me. I haven't necessarily heard a lot of the others. The all Bad that breeds, I, I think, is of. also a one that that has a lot of okay, a lot of or some heat behind it. I don't know if it will actually translate, but I remember seeing that on that get talked about more, and I think that's about um, birds, like birds in India, and like this sort of um fragile ecosystem and pollution and these two brothers who are sort of racing to save this one you know these this either i think this one specific bird basically but yeah i would agree i mean fire of love i just the have you seen it scott have you seen fire no, of love? i haven't yet no some people really do like the miranda july as a narrator mm -hmm. did not work for me that was like the one part of the film that just does not work for me um i didn't think that her narration was that good um, but everything else in the film is just ridiculous, Listen, ridiculous and like footage that they captured and that they have like raw footage of volcanoes. It's just incredible. Um, yeah, Navalny in a normal year, Navalny would be easily winning, I feel like this category. But yeah, all the beauty in the bloodshed is just. It's, it's a, a, picture. a monumental film, in my opinion, well, yeah. I will I will definitely be talking about it more on the top 10 episode because we didn't do an episode on it or anything. But I was just it, you come to the New York Film the Festival, most... Scott. That was the weekend you were going to come. We could have gone and seen it. Together. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I didn't know what to expect, but it was of maybe course, the most course. emotionally affecting film I've seen this year. But um, sure. International feature, Scott, is the other one. I think of a lot of interest here. Yeah. Um, looking at this list, I think that the movies to point out would, of course, be uh, Saint Omer, the French nominee, right? Which I really want to see. I'm hearing, I've heard great things about it. Apparently, it's kind of a courtroom drama. That's but, Alice um, That's Alice Diop's movie, right? Yes, everyone yeah. seems to love this film, and France, you know, has a good. Good track record, I would say. All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, you would expect it to get nominated since it's getting recognized in other categories. That's Germany's submission, Bardo, uh, Mexico's submission, of course, Alejandro Giannari's film, although not getting the best reviews. Because of his track record with the Oscars, I'd be stunned if it's not nominated for international. And just as a reminder, no critics vote for the Academy Awards. So yes. I imagine, yeah, to your exact point, the fact that he's won Best Director twice, et cetera, his film will be recognized, and I would expect. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, that is true that no critics vote, but the people who vote do listen to critics. I mean, I, again, I think we've already seen that this year in the in the example of films like Empire of Light, right, which is just Oscar bait on paper, but is not getting any attention. And, you know, historically, it happens to films that don't get as and white noise even. Right. Which we've talked about, like, again, you would have thought maybe it's going to get itself in the race, but not not it's not looking so and i'm sure the lukewarm reviews lukewarm reception has something to do with that uh eo scott poland's nominee this is jersey skolaminski's film um yep that uh is also getting talked about a lot i was actually at my indie theater this weekend scott and i had gone to see empire of light and they are also showing eo and as i was walking out of the theater i heard one of the staff members saying yeah, you know, referring to Empire of Light, he was saying, yeah, you know, there hasn't been as much interest as we um, were hoping for. Right now, it's all about the whale and EO, uh, which I was kind of shocked to hear that this Polish film about a donkey from Jerzy Skolominski is is uh, getting attention at the indie theater. But hey, maybe it speaks well for its chances. And then the other film, Scott, to note is, of course, Decision to Leave uh, Park Chan-wook's film which is south korea's nominee i don't know if park jane wook has ever had a film nominated for an oscar i don't think he, that he has um was old boy not? was nominated i don't think so uh old boy is just it doesn't strike me as the type of film it may not have even been their submission that year it doesn't strike me as the type of film that would be getting an oscar race but um if i am wrong about that you can just edit that out of the podcast but um no, you're right. A couple, okay, yeah. A couple other films, Scott. Corsage, which is coming out this week, I believe. This is a Vicky Crepe starring film from Austria. Yep. Looks like kind of a costume drama. Um, and then Return to, Return to Soul is Cambodia's nominee. I I have heard a good deal about this movie and that it's quite good. Um, so mm -hmm. maybe one to watch there as well. But I think those are probably the major players here. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, of course. I almost saw Corsage this past week because it's playing at Lincoln Center right now. It was at the New mm -hmm. York Film Festival and I was like back and forth multiple times, but whether to buy a ticket and go watch it. It seems I, I haven't looked that much of about it, but it think it I thought it was just sort of a straight laced drama, but I think it's more of like a genre bender. Um just based on a trailer that I saw, like a like a brief snippet of a trailer that I saw, but I could be wrong about that. I'm excited to see it. I do want to see it before we register like we lock in our top 10 lists of the year because it does seem like i mean i really like vicky crepes um i've been thinking a lot about her recently mainly because alamo is showing phantom thread next month um and i've been debating whether or not to go see that um again i mean i saw it in theaters back in i guess beginning of 2018 right at the start of the podcast yeah. five years ago i don't think um, i ever did actually did you just see it on vod or yeah yeah i watched okay. it on, online got it um yeah, so Corsage, I think I think what you said were the were the ones to focus on is absolutely right. I would be interested to see if Corsage can pick up any steam as it gets a wider release um, in indie theaters across the U.S. over the next few weeks. And Eo, what a weird one! Another one at the New York Film Festival that I almost went and saw for the longest time. Thought it was a documentary about this donkey, and no, it's actually it's it's a drama film, and there's like four donkeys. And I know it's like four donkeys playing this one donkey, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, Fun fact sure. about. Uh... EO is that 
I, when I was doing my study abroad, here I am being this annoying guy who brings up his study abroad. In uh, 2015, I was in London. At least it's not your gap year. I, You're not bringing up your gap year, at least. Yeah. yeah. I went to see a film at the London Film Festival, just, you know, because it's a cool experience. Sure. Uh, and I went to see a film. It was actually Jerzy Skolomiski's previous film called 11 Minutes. Not a very good film, but uh, Jersey Skolominski was there and mm-hmm. he came out and spoke after the film. He is this old Polish dude. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's actually like, I think he's 84 years old now. Um, he's very old. He's actually been an, act- an actor. He's been in a-, a couple of films. He was in Eastern Promises, uh, which is one of my favorite movies, David Cronenberg film. But um, interesting guy. It's kind of cool to see that he's getting his attention for his donkey film at age 84 but um, i to be fair i also think his name is jersey skolomovsky just so you know i i think we might have been pronounced it he has a, a w at the end of his name not an n um i don't know how to pronounce it but i think it's skolomovsky probably i know we've been pronouncing it wrong oh yeah that's that's fair uh i you know sorry it's a complicated name no 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 um, I, also I, I mean i didn't catch it at first either it's only just because i'm going yeah. to look up his his movie. I mean, yeah, I, I think this was this debuted at Cannes, right? And I think it won some. I think it won a jury prize or something like that. And his, that like the speech right, he yeah. gave after he won was like, I've just heard it was like really weird. Yeah. Um. He seems like a wild guy. Uh. Scott, just to hit a, a couple more before we go. Uh. Music original score. Sure. Um. You know, a, a few films to note here. Obviously, Avatar: The Way of Water getting nominated. I can't remember the composer's name, but um, he's getting Simon nominated. Franklin. Yeah, getting shortlisted. Sorry, not nominated yet. Justin Hurwitz getting shortlisted for Babylon. Um, the Banshees of Inisherin. I believe that's the great Carter Burwell, who somehow has never won an Oscar, um, but he uh, was nominated. You have uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Of course, the first Black Panther um, won Best Original Score for Ludwig Göransson. Um Everything, everywhere, all at once did make it in um, here. The Fablemans, John Williams, you know, the most nominated man in the history of the the Oscars. Um, Glass Onion. Who did the Glass Onion score? Remind me, Scott. Nathan Johnson, Ryan Johnson's cousin. Nathan Johnson, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Glass Onion is on there. Scott, my personal favorite, I think, of the short list would be Nope. Michael Abel's score yep. um, is on the list. Absolutely. Of course, we have Nicholas Bratel. Um, popping up, as you would expect, for She Said. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Women Talking, which is, although she was uh, she was barred for sub- submitting her TAR score, um, Hildur Gunadotter, who, of course, won the um, Academy Award for Joker back in 2019, uh, she is getting on the short list with, women, with her Women Talking score. So a lot of sort of, you know, big names that you expect to see circling around anytime they compose... Did Duplaw not do Pinocchio? I know you skipped over Pinocchio, but is that not Alexander? Oh, Duplaw? okay. It, it might have been Alexander Desplat. Yeah, I, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. Actually, I mean that it. it I'm certain it was because he did um, the Shape of Water and he won for the Shape of Water. Um, yeah, and then Terrence Blanchard film. also is in there with the Woman King. I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, Spike Lee's frequent collaborator. But um, Scott, any thoughts on the field here? I mean, look, I, I think this represents, you know, probably if I were to make my own category, which I forget, do we do this category in our Some Like It's Got Awards? I I never remember whether we do this. We did last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that all five of my movies will 
at least four of uh, at least four of these will be on my list probably for that. So, um, yeah, I mean Simon Franklin and, and Michael Abel's probably right now just off the cup, off the cuff, probably the top two for me of the year. They have particular motifs in each of their scores that just sort of combine with the images on the screen to create just some of the some of the best moments of the year um, in cinema. So. Yeah, I think that there's definitely some strong contenders here. Having said that, it'll probably be, you know, don't worry, darling, devote. I'm kidding. No, it's not, not going to happen. Um, I, I mean, I say that maybe it will. I don't know. I haven't seen I haven't seen what the what the favorites are right now. But, you know, Nathan Johnson, I think his knives out scores are really spectacular. They're always I talked about it on the podcast, but that always sort of feels perfectly weighted for what's going on on the screen. Um it's a great it's a pretty it's a pretty strong short list. It's I feel like that the Academy doesn't often just royally mess up the original score category. Occasionally they do. Um, it happens once in a blue moon. They didn't but, even nominate uh, uh, first man. So they really screwed like I said, up. yeah, it definitely it definitely happens every once in a while. I don't under I mean, I, I kind of get it, but also don't get why good and daughter couldn't be nominated for tar. Um, just don't consider the Mahler stuff. Like I just, it's super simple. Like, I don't know. Like you just, you just don't think about the Mahler stuff when you're thinking about nominating good Daughter. Cause I think that there's so, there's some really great pieces that good Daughter um, adds to tar, but whatever. No one asked my opinion. I didn't make the rules. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I don't know that it's a super strong year for scores for me, um, but you know, a couple films, which do stand out to me would be um, Nope. Like I said, and then, um, the other one being the Fablemans and uh, John Williams. And then, you know, while I, it's maybe not one of his most memorable works, again, I am very invested in Carter Burwell finally getting um, acknowledged because he has produced so much great work in the past. Um, and so I, I certainly hope he gets in there for the Banshees of Inisherin. Decision to Leave is a movie which that is one movie that I think of when I think of scores this year. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously not on the short list, so that's a little disappointing. But again, I, I don't know if it was a super strong year for scores on the whole. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing touching, you know, Dune last year in terms of what was able to be accomplished with something like that. Yeah, and I believe my choice was uh, Spencer for Johnny Greenwood. So um, if that also a pretty high watermark. But the, last category, are you surprised to not see Reznor and Ross here for Empire of Light? Um, a little bit. I, I mean, it is a, it is a good score. I watched it the is, movie, yeah. um, over the weekend. One of the only positive things I have to say about it probably is the score, but, um, sure. yeah, maybe a little surprise again, this movie just, it, it's not going to exist in two years, Scott. It, uh, it truly people are not going to, does it, does it exist now, Scott? I'm not sure it even exists now. It's getting there. It's getting there. Um, finally, Scott original song, maybe some, some intrigue to discuss here. Sure, uh not to not to scott it is on the short list from rrr um let it bump just uh just wonderful if that comes uh, up on the see, shuffle if you're not out there see. on the dance floor whipping with the boys like what are you doing yeah um if it got nominated that would be awesome um if it won that would be mind-blowing uh lift me up scott which is rihanna's song from um black yeah. panther wakanda forever is also on here good song um hold my hand I mean, I would venture to say maybe the favorite um, from Top Gun Maverick. This is Lady Gaga's song. Yeah, um, it, it, that is so funny that that is the favorite. Not because it's not a great song. I don't have I don't have that strong of an opinion about the song. It's one a really good song, yeah. The other, but 
when you first hear the song in the movie, it is so jarring. <laughs> Because it's just playing on like the the jukebox in the background and like when the bar is empty and like one random scene in the movie and you're just like, huh, Lady Gaga. Okay. Very yeah, when it plays in that ending, though, it's just like, man, sure. the movies, the movies are so good sometimes. Um, and that, that's the problem, though, because they shouldn't have played it during the movie, Scott. That's the problem. <laughs> they shouldn't have played it during the movie. They no, just I, I'm happy. The end. I'm happy with how they used it. I am. But okay. Lady Gaga, you know, has already won uh, Best Original Song a couple of years ago. So um, could be a, a double dose for her. Sure. Uh, Carolina, Scott, I don't think it's going to get nominated, honestly. But uh, it's not that good it is song. on the Sorry. In the short list, it is a good song. But, um, you know, I, I don't know uh, if it's going to make the make the five. Also, I mean, for one, because where the crawdads sing is, you know, Stinker. just not a movie that yeah. anyone... Thinking about, I mean, it did quite well. To I was gonna fair. say, Scott, it actually made like a hundred million at the box office, yeah. So. <laughs> but that's Taylor Swift's song from Where the Crawdads Sing. Um, not even the best song that Taylor Swift has made for a movie, though. That would be the Hunger Games song that she did, um, a oh, while certainly. back, but yeah. And then, Scott, we just talked about it New Body Roomba, uh, yeah. the LCD sound system song for uh, from White Noise, which awesome. I don't know if it's going to get nominated, but I would love to see James Murphy at the Oscars. That would be uh, something hilarious probably. So um, those are the ones that stand out for me, I guess. It uh, looks like Selena Gomez has a song also from the docu her documentary um, that's on here. There's a song from Spirited, which, you know, is a musical. Um, sure. I think you're, I, I you're missing Stand Up, the Till, the song in Till. Okay. I think that's the one, one of the ones you're probably missing. Just watch it till in the last couple of weeks. Uh, don't remember the song, but fair enough. That's true of like half the songs get nominated. I don't remember them. I don't know. That's a lot of them over the closing credits problem. and I just leave. So You and me both. Okay, I'm just noticing a man called Otto is on here. I've <laughs> blocked that out. I saw it like several minutes ago and I'm like, what? You know, yeah, I think that's the perfect I, place God bless end. people okay. who are going to go and watch A Man Called Otto and think it's great, but god help us i mean what tom hanks come on man i don't think god has blessed them honestly scott but um on that note i think it's time to conclude we've already gone a, a tad long so um scott where can our listeners find you on social media at, at shelton 2013 and you can find me at scarby dent on all social media platforms including tiktok follow me over there for some movie related content um, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Until then, though, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.